Welcome to America's Readers Book Club podcast. I'm Jacob Doyle, and I am joined today by Kayla Ruberg and Ray Ruberg as we dive into part two of Billion Dollar Ball by Gilbert M. Gall. Please spread the word about the podcast. This is our final month for 2019, but we have six other books already completed in the feed. So share the podcast with anyone you know who reads, and they'll probably find something that they like and can read along with us. So uh, guys, as we mentioned, there are only going to be three episodes this month. So this week is a little bit of a longer section. So let's get right into it. Kayla, first of all, uh, we got some feedback on Twitter. We talked a lot last week about the seat donations and how there was an 80% tax write-off. Uh, Ian McNeil on Twitter, who is a football donor, got back to us and said that that tax loophole was actually closed. So are you surprised that they were actually able to get that done? No, I mean, I was surprised that it went on for as long as it did. Um, from what it sounds like, it seemed like the, the government and stuff was going to step in at some point. They were just trying to find the right angle. Yeah, it looks like they did that at the end of 2017. So we can actually talk a little bit about that before we jump into the new chapters. Ray, uh, with the tax loophole being closed, it, it basically kind of crosses out chapter two for us. So. On one hand, it's a good job, I think, by Gall to point out the issue with that and really kind of made the book, I feel like, up to this point. But on, on the other hand, on one hand, he did a good job. But on the other hand, were you worried that, you know, we weren't going to have much else to talk about with the rest of the book or getting into this section that it was going to be more on something that ended up being a moot point? Yeah, I was a little bit worried, um, you know, if he continued going down that, that tax uh, loophole, rabbit hole, I bet again everything that he wrote and that we were reading was going to end up being a moot point but um luckily that wasn't the case and i also i i kind of took a different stance uh on this week's reading in terms of how i wanted to to view the reading and so i i eliminated kind of the thesis that we talked about last week of college football or the athletic departments in general basically taking money away from the quote-unquote real students at the universities and tried to look at it through the frame of um, how the title describes it of a journey through big money culture of college football and so it it didn't it didn't necessarily make the uh the material that much better but i i do think looking at it from that viewpoint um it at least brought the chapters and in, in the discussion together a little bit better than the argument he kind of laid out um in the beginning of the book that didn't really have anything to do with future chapters. So you just kind of redid your expectations a little bit? Yeah, I just did a reset. Well, um, on the tax loophole thing, I, I, I read an article about it. It was the end of 2017 when they actually got it through. The Senate was the one who brought it up, and then it got passed by the House, and then it was President Trump who just had to sign off on it. And the thing I found interesting is some of the schools, and I don't know how many ended up doing it, but right when it happened, Oklahoma, Florida State, and SMU were the three that I read about. They tried to offer their fans a deal and said, if by the end of this calendar year, you can sign up for your tickets for the next three seasons. And before that, this loophole goes away, you can kind of get grandfathered in for three years that way if you just pay for all three seasons and, and make that commitment up front. So are you surprised that the schools would try to squeeze every last drop out of that that they could <laughs> well no i'm not surprised at all um surprised I'm sure people more than three years yeah yeah i'm sure people took them up on the deal too 
yeah, I just thought that was kind of funny when I was reading it. I was like, ah, of course there's some sort of wrinkle that has to, it can't just be this clean, it's, this, this thing's over. <laughs> they had right. to find some way to be able to give some, give a little something back. But And, and I'm um, sure the schools wrote them the following year too, even though they donated three years worth, they, 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 they gave them a call next December and, and asked for more money. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we can get into chapter three though. And this chapter mostly talked about coaching salaries and buyouts. I've been trying to divide these topics up or, or these chapters up because they're so long into different topics, but this one really was just all about coaching salaries. So we, we kind of start off talking about Charlie Weiss at Notre Dame and his situation there. I, I mean, he talks about a bunch of different schools and a bunch of different coaching situations. So just as a whole, did you guys see where he was coming from on on all of these things, some of these things? Because I had some issues with what he was saying, but I, I don't know what your guys' takeaway was. Was this an issue for you? And were you when we started this book, were you expecting for this to be part of it? So I figured at some point they'd talk about coaches' salaries and, and dive into it and how they've grown. Um I obviously, being a college football fan and, and following it fairly closely or very closely, I was not surprised by the numbers they were throwing around. Um, you know, I think the the main point or the the main point that I would agree with him on here is is when it comes to the buyouts of the coaches, um, just the the paying somebody to go away because they're so bad at their job. I understand that that's the nature of these contracts and that's how it works. And, and the coaches, um, you know, kind of demand that now, and that's what the going rate is. So that's what the athletic departments have to pay. Um, but just, just from, a j just from a pure paying somebody to not do something side of things, I, that's, that's where I do one area. I do agree with them on. What I don't understand is the um, quickness from the athletic directors or department to offer these long-term deals to coaches that really have only had a few games of success. I mean, he had six games that he won and he lost one, and then they offered to extend his contract and boost his salary. So it's just um, – it seems like these coaches really don't have to prove themselves very much – to get these large deals. Yeah, I, yeah, feel like I was surprised. I, I I remember that differently going backwards um, or thinking back on it. I thought that it was at the end of the year that they gave him that long extension. I, I didn't, I forgot it was only after six games. So I would agree with you, Kayla. It's let these guys come in and, and actually prove themselves before you do that long contract extension. And that was just one example with Charlie Weiss. Um, but yeah, it was a little ridiculous, and he and he signed the extension after losing. Yeah, that was really funny. It just it speaks to the desperation of these schools, and it reminds me of he he brought up something that Delos Dodds, who was the former Texas athletic director, said to him, where when you have a coach that you think is the guy, you have to pay whatever and do whatever you can to hold on to him. So it's almost like we were talking a little bit before we started recording Notre Dame got so swept up in the emotion of playing in big time games again, that they convinced themselves that they had their guy. So yeah. What was it? What did you say? It was six games in and then it was a, a six year, $12 million extension or something. Yeah. No, it was a, it was a 10 year a deal. 10 year. Oh, yeah. what? I think it was six, maybe originally it was on top. It right. was on top of that or whatever. They yeah, extended okay. it to 10. 
yeah, so that can get a little out of hand. It's it's so he does make okay points when it comes to those kind of things, but there were some issues that I had where he he's talking about James Franklin from Vanderbilt, and he got a six year deal at four and a half million dollars a year, and he immediately compared that to what Joe Paterno ever made. And that's not I don't think that's a very strong point because we've talked about how much the money has changed in college football, especially with these TV deals. And by the time Joe Paterno was even in the the like 2003, 2004 range, they had a couple really down seasons where they even went like three and nine. And he was in his upper 70s and was just kind of a figurehead. And he wasn't going to go anywhere. There was no demand for him at all. So they didn't need to pay him anywhere near like four and a half million dollars or anything like that. And what I found interesting is I actually looked up coaching salaries and James Franklin is the 15th highest paid coach. So it's not even like for that deal. And that's coming from an SEC school. So it's not like Vanderbilt, you know, I mean, that's and he won there and they're not a traditional power or anything. So it kind of just seems to me like that's the going rate. And I don't really know if that's a legitimate gripe, it seems like he has problems with Penn state that going back to even like the last section, I don't know. Yeah. And uh, given, given the amount of money that ESPN and CBS and ABC and NBC and Fox, and then the own conference networks are, are giving to these schools and to the NCAA, the rise in salaries, it's not really that crazy. It it, kind of makes sense if you understand, you know, finance at all. And that's maybe my biggest gripe with Gaw is that he doesn't seem to understand the supply and demand, the very simple economics of of college football. And ultimately, it's an entertainment business. And, and the money that the schools are bringing in who have the best coaches and the best team or who have the best teams are be, typically because they have the best coaches. Um, so, so to me, I, I think it's, if if you went to the schools and he's talked to them, obviously they they all view it as a positive investment. Even even when they talk to the presidents of the schools, not just the athletic departments or the ads, they almost you know all of them outside of the professors have said having a good college football coach and paying them to stay there has been a solid investment for the school. It is, I mean, but don't you think on the schools part, it's risky trying to find that good football coach because you know what do who is funding this stuff when the football team does not perform well yeah that's the question i wish he would have gone into more and he keeps focusing on these these power five schools where he's talking about notre dame and penn state and tennessee and even talks about nick saban in this chapter and I wish he would focus on, you know, for example, what, what happens at Northern Illinois when their coaching hire doesn't work out or Toledo or New Mexico or one of those type of schools. And well, what, are the, what are their margins like? Because they can afford it with the TV deals that Ray was just talking about. And if, if they have a less proven guy, then they're not paying them all that much. Because a lot of the examples he comes up with in this chapter it kind of undercuts his point because he says it's a, the idea that there are only a few top level coaches. And that, I mean, I think that's a known thing in college football. Only four active coaches have won a national championship. So that speaks to that, but he calls that a specious argument and brings up there are 65 power five schools and nine coaches on each staff. So just pick one of those guys to pay like a million dollars. And he just doesn't seem to understand that it doesn't really work that way. And 
a lot of the, the arguments he brings up with, with these coaches buyouts that he's kind of complaining about at Tennessee and Kansas and all those, those are all $2 million and less per year coaches that they have to fire because they didn't get the job done. So you end up just sort of chasing it if you're one of those schools, but I mean, they have the money to do it. The only thing they're missing is the actual coach that delivers the wins. Right. And what I'm saying is once all the athletic department money runs out, who's then funding it to keep it going? The school has to most likely invest in it, correct? Well, you think he doesn't really go into which athletic right. departments are losing money. That's part of the problem. Right. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm and then he like, he, but this, and it's confusing because I'm trying to understand his point of view of where he's coming from, but he kind of, he goes back and forth on hinting at who's paying for what, like when he's talking about the Charlie Weiss deal and the buyout, he says in here that, um, let me just find it here real quick. My page turned. It says for its part, Notre Dame appears to have more than enough cash in reverse to cover the buyout and its billions and its endowment. So is there a separate endowment on the athletic department from the university or is the university covering his buyout? And I, I believe it is the athletic department covering it, but the way he states it in the book, he makes it sound like the university's covering, covering it. Yeah. He could be a little bit more clear he he uses some things interchangeably, I think, that he could be a little bit more clear on if it's the athletic department funding it or if it's the university, if it's the athletic department or the college football program bringing in money or if it's actually their bottom line profit. Um, he seems to use some of that stuff interchangeably. And I agree with you, Jake, that if, if this is going to be his argument, and maybe he will, um, in the later chapters, but if his argument is, is going to be that when the teams are bad, then the, then the academic side of the universities start funding the athletic programs. I'd like to hear him dive into that boring and get a better feel around those um, discussions and in how Texas has been impacted when their when their team's not as good or Notre Dame, how they've been impacted financially when their team's not as good. Did, did their athletic departments have to then go begging for money from the university or were they able to still continue to operate um, in, the, in, in the positive? Right. I mean, the only time that he mentions a football team not performing well versus money toward the university, he just says that um, the athletic department made a pledge to give money to the university once they did not perform well they just forego the pledge that they aren't responsible for it but that says to me that the university is not necessarily losing money that's money that they would have never really have gotten it was a pledge yeah i don't know i, I my biggest gripe with this whole chapter is that that part was so unclear with where this money is coming from on these buyouts and those kind of things, but just his basic college football know-how, he, he doesn't understand. Just for example, like I said, he was talking about there are over 60 Power 5 schools and nine coaches per staff. He's acting like Nick Saban is the same as, it's like he doesn't know that the, out of those nine coaches, those are not all head coaches. I mean, one's a special teams coach, one's an offensive line coach, one's a linebackers coach, and not all those guys have the experience. Like if you're the head coach of a major program, you have to wear a lot of hats and it's not just about the X's and O's. 
and it's about recruiting and fundraising and all these other things that he just doesn't take into account. And one of the examples he uses is Derek Dooley at Tennessee, who ended up being a disaster, and he was making $1.8 million per year. And I guarantee you he doesn't know this, but Derek Dooley is actually the offensive coordinator at Missouri now. And Missouri was number 12 last year in the rankings that we like to use for our college football podcast with a top 10 offense. But Derek Dooley, so, I mean, you would think he's one of the top offensive coordinators in the country. So really, if he was going to look at it, instead of nine coaches per staff, for guys who realistically, if you know how college football works, would move into a head coaching spot, it's going to be an offensive coordinator or a defensive coordinator. So at the 65 schools, if you include Notre Dame, it's basically cut into a third right off of that. Right. And then and a guy like Derek Dooley, who's running a top 10 offense, has had an opportunity to be a head coach in, at a SEC school, and it was a total disaster. So how many more people like that do you have to cross off? I just don't think he understood. And, and one of the things he brought up is Nick Saban and his first five years or whatever it was at Alabama made over $200 million for Alabama with their three national championships. And he doesn't talk about how much money they were making before. And as I mentioned to you guys before we started recording in the 25 seasons before Nick Saban got there, they had four double digit win seasons. And in Nick Saban's first five years, they had three national championships. So $6.5 million per year for Nick Saban is nothing. And like another example would be Jimbo Fisher. This was signed after he wrote the book is 10 years, 75 million. I'm sure Gall would lose his mind if he saw that. But Texas A&M was eight and five, eight and five, eight and five, and then seven and five. And they were starting to lose attendance, lose fan support. And so they bring in Jimbo Fisher to that contract. And in year two, they've had top 10 recruiting classes both years. And now they're already a top 10 team going into this upcoming season. And I just don't think he knows how to account for that. I just don't think he understands how college football works in that way. Yeah. And it's in, in the big time programs that he's gone to, and the ones that are successful, they're making money. They're bringing they're bringing in more money than they're spending. Um, he he notes that Alabama had a seventy two percent profit margin, and it got cut down to fifty four percent because of all the staff that that Saban hired. Well, fifty four percent profit margin on uh, the athletic department is still unbelievably good, and so and it's obviously more than covering the the coaches' salaries. So. I agree with you, Jake. Hit this this argument here kind of fell flat for me. Yeah, and just there was another part too where he's comparing to what other CEOs make, and I don't. I mean, I I, I don't understand as much about economics as you do, Ray, for sure. And Kayla, I don't know about you, but I, it's it's a it's a completely different industry. I mean, the market will dictate in college football. There are this many jobs. And this many people who win at this job, but it, you know, if you go out into, he was bringing up the the CEOs of Procter and Gamble and Costco, I would think that the field is a lot bigger to choose from for somebody to run those companies. So I'm sure that's why the market has dictated that they make less than the the premier college football coaches. I, yeah, it, and seems, and it seems obvious to me. I don't even know. His, he, even his argument towards their salaries, I mean it for the most part, a, a big time public company um, CEO, their salary is not, it's not their only form of income from the company. He mentions the stock options and whatnot, but that's really where a ton of their compensation comes from is stock options, bonuses, um, and those types of things when the company performs well. So for them to, 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 for him to say that they only make, you know, one or two million dollars a year compared to the football coach who makes six point five million, 
it's really not an apples to apples argument at all. It's if you look at the total compensation, I guarantee you it's it's in the 20 to 30 to 40 million dollars a year for those CEOs. It's definitely not apples to apples, but I mean, a lot of these coaches and things do get a lot of extra bonuses and perks and things as well on top of their salaries. Oh, I would agree. And he mentions that too, with like the golf course memberships and the housing and, in uh, you know, performance bonuses, but it's uh, my experience would tell me that that's nowhere near the amount of monetary gain that the CEOs get. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I just, they get, I was just adding in that they get a little bit of that too. The one thing that <laughs> the, I will say the one, I don't know if it was this section or when he went back to Alabama um, in chapter five, but when they said that the university bought Saban's house from him and then basically said he got to live there rent free. Um, the, I, I think he said basically for the rest of his life, that, that was uh, pretty unbelievable to me. I couldn't believe the university did that. Hey, you got to do what you got to do to keep a guy like that around. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think they've, he's more than worth it. Um, that was just kind of a surprising move to me though. There's part of this chapter too, I guess, Kayla, it's kind of how you were talking about where if he really focused on, okay, it, it, it doesn't seem like there's a follow through with, and he's kind of unclear about where the money goes in certain situations. He keeps focusing on all these big time programs, but not so much the the, the losing ones, the, the middle tier ones. And so if, it, if he was more clear on that, and then another issue I had is he keeps injecting himself into it and in what his view of college football should be. And it keeps going back to that like small time Ivy League Haverford type stuff because he goes into Mount Union, which is D3, and he's talking to the wife of their coach and she just likes it because that's real football and it's what football is supposed to be about. And it's like, yeah, in your opinion, but it, it's like he doesn't leave any room for these schools to operate the way they are. I mean, it's, it's it's like his lens when he decided to write this book was this is a problem. And so then every single thing he encountered every step of the way was viewed through this. This is a problem. This is a problem. And it's like maybe to you, but I, I don't know. I just I, I don't have any sympathy for the, the D3 coach who didn't take a Kent State job to try to work his way up. But then Gall acts like you know, he's this, he's a saint. Guy. Yeah. yeah. And, and like, he should have had a bigger, bigger job or something. I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, well, and it's not for everybody. Right. I mean, yeah. D D three. I'm sure that, um, he puts in a ton of time and, you know, works his butt off to make Mount union, the program that it was, it helps that he gets a lot of transfers from Ohio state who, who, you know, were recruited to Ohio state and then couldn't see the playing field. But, it's not for everybody to go to a D1 program and deal with the level of recruiting, the amount of time you have to spend recruiting, the amount of time you spend scouting and, and being the figurehead of the university and, and being, you know, front and center on on national media outlets and everything along those lines. That's not for everybody. And so um, the Mount Union coach chose not to not to pursue that route and and, you know, more power to him. But that doesn't mean that the way D1 football operates is wrong. Right. It's a very in high demand job. And it does make it hard um, just from a family standpoint um, when you have when one of the spouses has a very in high demand job. Um, 
making time for family and things like that. Not that it's impossible, but I mean, it was just something he decided he didn't, he didn't want that life. So, but I mean, to continue on with him not following through with his arguments, another thing that I have an issue with is that every once in a while he'll start talk, not every once in a while, he's continuing to talk about how much these universities spend on coaches and how much they spend on uh, these learning centers for their players and per student and things like that. And then all of a sudden he'll just throw in a comment here and there, 35,000 or 35 times more than the average college professor gets paid or 10 times more than the uh, chancellor or president gets paid. And I just, and then he never goes into detail on any of that stuff. He just throws a comment and here and there. Yeah. He, ne he never brings it back or makes the connection or maybe it's not a connection for him that the football coach when successful brings in way more money via bowl game revenue, via TV revenue, um, and, and actually via in, increased enrollment than the president or any professor ever would. So it, it's, it's all about the return on the investment. And, and, and right now, the way the TV rights are and the way the bowl game payouts are, the, the best return on an investment for a university is through their um, football program, through a yes. successful football program, I should say. Yes to everything you're saying, right? And but and along with that is it's two separate funding sources is what I keep going back to. Is why is he keep saying this time uh, more times this when it's two separate funding sources? I don't know if he thinks it should just all be in one pot and someone should divvy it up other than the athletic directors. I'm just it, he's very unclear on that. Yeah, that's that's a good point. That that the people who make the decisions for the head coaches pay, and the people who make the decisions for the president and the chancellor and the professors pay are are different entities. Yeah, he's good at pointing out the things that he thinks are problems, but then is short on the solutions for him. Like that would be a perfect situation to say, this is how much more this coach makes than a professor, and here's what I would propose, or here's why why I think that's an issue. It's it's almost just like so. Here you go. But then the, the tone of it is you know that he has a problem with it. Right. So, yeah. I was wondering that, and Kayla, is the tone the same when you're reading it, or is the <laughs> the audible person that is reading the book to Jake and I, is, is his tone maybe shaping, <laughs> shaping the way that we're thinking about it? I mean, I would say that we um, have similar feelings about the book. So, I mean, I assume I would take that as the tone's the same. There's one more point I had on this chapter that I was just uh, he I wish he would bring this up. Maybe it just doesn't have anything to do with it. But Kentucky football, for example, makes more than Kentucky basketball. And Kentucky basketball is like as big as it gets. But their football program, which has not been good for basically ever, makes more than the basketball team. But the basketball coach for Kentucky, his salary is twice as high as the football coach. So I, I just like we talk about how much money these football programs make and it's more than basketball across the board. And especially if it's the biggest blue blood in basketball doesn't even make as much as the football team. So why, why doesn't he have a problem? Why is it just football that he's focusing on? I mean, it seems like the, the margins in basketball are smaller 
Yet the coaching salaries, if you look at it in the top 50 highest paid coaches in basketball, they're all upwards of $3 million these days. So I don't know why he doesn't take issue with that. I mean, I guess this is just about football, but it just kind of makes me wonder of why it wouldn't be all of sports athletic departments in general or why he wouldn't take issue with that. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, overall, the thing that keeps kind of coming up back to me when I'm reading this is is what you said earlier, Jake. I think he had a point of view that he already knew was going to be how the book was written. And then he went to find facts or figures that supported that point of view. And ultimately, I, I, I mean, it, it, to me, it seems like the whole issue with his in-laws and Penn State maybe even kickstarted the idea to write this book. Yeah, we, we can go. Uh, yeah, that's what it seems like to me, too. We can go on to Chapter 4, then, if you guys are ready. Uh, this one's more about tutors and advisors, and he takes a trip to Oregon. He spends some time on the Kansas campus looking at class checkers and then kind of talks about Oregon and some of their facilities that they have for the athletes. So, I mean, we can just kind of jump around in this chapter and talk about the kind of things that stood out to you guys. I don't know what you found to be the most important. So I was actually really glad for this chapter because this is kind of, although I didn't agree with his viewpoints, um, but I was kind of glad that he dove into all the academic support that is provided for uh, the athletes while they're on campus. Um, where he kind of takes the standpoint that it's ridiculous that they're providing all this academic support for athletes to be successful and to get a degree when they're not providing the same support to every student that attends the college. But uh, the way I kind of look at it as these are students that may have never have had this opportunity if they were not talented at football. And some of them may not be able to read or write, but when they graduate from their program, they are able to be productive members of society and contribute. So the way I kind of see it is a win. Um, everything cannot be equal for everybody. They are offering something to the university and in the return, their university is providing them with the academic skills to be successful in life. So I don't see a problem with it, but obviously he does. Yeah, that's that's very well said. I couldn't agree more. This was actually the most shocking chapter to me that we've read so far because my general thought process was, uh, you know, whenever they call these um, these kids student athletes, I always kind of chuckle because it's it it just doesn't seem like the student side um, is actually pertinent. But you know, especially like with Kansas with their class checkers, with what Oregon did with their huge academic center for the athletes, and you know, making them go spend certain amount of time with tutors, making sure that they're attending classes, um, if they're falling behind, getting them back up to speed, or if they came to college. And, and maybe weren't necessarily hitting the requirements that a, a typical student would need to hit to get into the university. They're like Kayla said, they're making sure that these, you know, less fortunate kids or, or these uh, kids who would maybe typically get left behind are being caught up, are being academically eligible and are ultimately improving themselves, their lives and their chances to be a uh, contributing member of society after college. I, I agree. I think that was 
it should have been a huge positive to you know focus on and instead it was it was kind of uh interpreted as a negative from from what i was reading yeah kayla i completely agree with your point too and i couldn't say it any better and there's even a point where he says that he, he even brings up quote unquote real students. He doesn't think it's fair to the real students. And it's just like, wow. I mean, he comes across like such an elitist kind of a prick in this chapter. I, I, some of these kids, like, like you guys have both said, they'll be the first one in their family to graduate college and just the pride that comes with that. And again, the, 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 the athletic uh, academic center at Oregon, that was paid for with donor money. So I, I don't know it's again, it's not like the university had to pump it out and give them special treatment. That was money that was specifically from a, a donation from Phil Knight, who is, is the Nike guy for people who don't know that, but he donated over $300 million over a 15 year span. And I think this building alone was what they say. Was it, I think it was like around a hundred million dollars or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So I don't understand what the problem is. Well, the only thing I had an issue with, that building is it required um, or it proposed, and I think it ended up changing, but it proposed that the university actually give $2 million a year to keep it up and running annually. But um, I think they have since then switched it to the athletic department funding it because it's not open to to everyone. But I mean, I and he makes another point, like you're talking about the real students. He also goes into detail about the majors that these football players or athletic students are um, are pursuing as to graduate. And so he goes to the point of saying real majors, real career paths that they're not pursuing real majors. I mean, communications is a difficult major. I know several people that are in communications that work for CNN and uh, Fox Carolina and things like that. It's a difficult field. Um, you've got to be somewhat talented to be successful in some of those majors. So I just and I don't know why he's just putting down any education. I mean, obviously, I mean, you're kind of putting down the university for offering these kind of majors is the point that he's making. He's trying to say that these are cake majors that these students are taking because they're a football player, when I don't think that's a fair thing to say. Yeah, no the whole majors are cake majors. The whole tone is extremely condescending. Um, and, and, you know, he, he touches on it. I think one of the uh, athletic directors he interviewed touched on it in that it's not unusual for a group of friends or a group of like-minded people to ultimately end up in very similar majors. So the fact that a lot of football players end up in, you know, sociology or, or the same major, depending on whatever school it is, it's, it's not that crazy. I, I mean, when I was in college, a lot of my friends ended up being in the business school majors and it's, that's just, you know, you grav gravitate to people in things the same way, um, whether you're on the football team or not. So I, it's not surprising to me. I know, I do know that there are certain universities where um, it's been reported that, you know, some of the majors are a lot easier or the professors are a little bit more lenient with athletes and so forth and so on, and that the coaches might push kids towards those majors. Um, so I, I'm not overly surprised by his focusing on it. But like you said, Kayla, it's 
the fact that these kids are even getting an education in the first place is something to be, and then the teams and the, the, the schools are making sure that they're going to class and actually are real students and not just, um, you know, just not just athletes who are being given a degree instead of earning a degree. Um, I think it's, I think it's something to be commended. He keeps putting it down, but we should touch on because and he, he should have touched on it more, but he does at least bring up the North Carolina scandal. Yeah. And so this was, this was huge news, um, back when it broke a few years ago. Um, I guess probably a few years before he wrote the book. So eight or nine years ago at this point, and basically the football team had their tutors just doing the work or going to classes or passing the, the football players without the players actually doing anything or getting an education or actually doing any of the work on their own. So this, this betters his argument more than focusing on what he focused the majority of the chapter on. Um, but I do have a quick tidbit on this because uh, I was recently with um, with a guy down in Nashville. He, he, he works for our company and we did a, a quick trip down there and he went to North Carolina. Um, and so we were talking about, I, I was talking about how because North Carolina was a blue blood, blue blood program, the NCAA more or less only gave him a slap on the wrist when this scandal broke. And he said, well, the interesting thing is, is the reason they only got a slap on the wrist is because the nature of the scandal was that while tutors were cheating for students and that got the coach fired and it got the athletic department in trouble and they got like some probation by the NCAA, but not like, you know, not, not the death penalty as they call it or the death sentence is because the majority of the scandal focused on independent study classes. And so these are typically classes where as a student, you don't have to go and sit in a class at all. You show up maybe three or four times a semester, hand in a paper, take a test, whatever it may be. But ultimately you're on your own to learn the coursework and you show that in the papers and the tests that you take, you know, three or four times a semester. Well, at North Carolina, these were completely fictitious classes in the sense that no work was actually required by the student. No papers were turned in, no tests were taken, there was no textbook, nothing. So you literally got three credit hours, everyone got an A, and, and they moved you along in that manner. But the reason why the athletic department didn't get in bigger trouble is because those independent study classes, the fictitious classes, were actually offered to the entire student body. And so the NCAA ruled it was not a privilege given to the athlete, to the athletes as much as it was actually just a failing of the university um, in these independent study classes for the entire university, not favoritism towards the athletes. And so for that reason, the NCAA could not you know, prosecute them further. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's terrible. So who holds the university accountable then? Yeah, so I, I went and um, did a little bit more research or digging into it then, and there's uh, basically the university, like accreditation board, put them on probation, and they were on probation, I think, for 
a couple years um, to get back in good good standing with the accreditation board. And I guess if 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 they had been uh, if they'd lost their accreditation, then that that you know they basically no longer exist as a university. So that would have been a huge deal for the entire university, obviously. Wow. I had no idea that there was that much more to that. Yeah. I mean, to your point, Ray, um, I think that it's, it's the point is it's great that these colleges are, or these athletic departments are offering these tutors and things like that to help assist their students. I mean, there's going to be, or to assist the athletes and things like that, but there's going to be bad apples in every, every situation. There's always going to be someone who's not following the rules. You can't ruin a good thing because someone decides to just go off the rails. Yeah. Can we touch on real quickly or if, if we're good with, um, with kind of the, the academic, uh, services that universities provide to athletes. Can we touch on Oregon charging their honor students more money to attend the school? Because <laughs> that seems like the, the most earth shattering thing that that he uncovered here. It actually costs an Oregon honor student $5,000 more than a regular student or whatever you want to call them uh, to attend Oregon because they feel the honor students are receiving more of an education is basically what he said. Yeah, that caught me off guard for sure. So maybe he'll do a deep dive into that next. Yeah, it seemed like he would have in the next chapter, or at least while he was still talking about Oregon. But it again, it, it, he just ended up sort of going into pitting that against the athletic department. And it, it's like, I don't know why, I don't really see how that would be the athletic department's fault. Cause he even went to go as far as to say that the honors college would, would be willing to be, what was what was the exact quote? They'd be willing to be, they, they can be bought off if they yeah. beg, if, if they just beg for money from the athletic department and if they would just throw them some money and some funding, then you could get them on your side. And I thought that was just, I couldn't believe what I was like, are you yeah. serious? Like that's your attitude towards this whole thing. I couldn't believe it, he had the gall to write that. <laughs> it just keeps going back to the whole thing that we've kind of talked about where it's his view that the athletic departments are big and bad and a problem. And he kind of jams it in even where it doesn't fit, where kind of what you're talking about there with the honor students. I mean, that that's more of an issue with the school itself. I don't really even see what that has to do with the athletic department. Right. He's not going to put down the actual school, though. Right. Well, and and he also not only are they, does he want him to bag for money from the athletic department, but also bag for money from Phil Knight. Yeah. So Phil Knight can't decide for himself what he wants to do with his money. And like Phil Knight ran track at Oregon and he founded the company that makes athletic wear. So it stands to reason that he would want to donate to the athletic department and right. want to see that their sports do well. So, you know, I, I don't know why he has an issue with Phil Knight, not giving his money to what Gilbert Gall thinks Phil Knight should give his money to. <laughs> There's another interesting part too. And it just, it, he was talking to the Princeton president and they were just talking about their concerns because these football programs, just these big football schools just want the money to flow 
And he said that he considers him and the Princeton president, they consider themselves to be outside of the bubble. And so like when you're outside of the bubble, you can see how screwed up the system is. And it's like, he doesn't realize that the bubble he is in is that Lafayette Haverford Ivy school bubble where he wants everybody to run the way they do. I mean, he's talking to the Princeton president about this and he just keeps going back to these kind of schools and in, in this, they're like the shining example without, it's just, none of these other schools are demanding that those school, like the Ivy league schools operate the way they do. So why does he demand that these schools need to operate the way that he thinks and the way these other schools, it, it, it's like he's, he doesn't want to allow different levels of this and each school to make their own decisions and to do their own things. It's so bizarre. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's well said it, it, he, I think we would, we would all say that he's living in his own little bubble and we don't understand his bubble. He doesn't understand our bubble and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's yeah. I don't have an issue with him thinking the way he does. I just, I disagree with it, but yeah, it, 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 no one, no one, like I say, nobody wants to force him and his Northeast schools to do anything differently if they don't want to. So I, I don't know where he thinks he gets off trying to change the whole system, especially, I don't know. He wants uh, everything to remain small time that yeah. he just, he just thinks the whole thing shouldn't be as big as it is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's well said. I just don't know why, like. I don't know what he, what does he care? I mean, if they're making money and Kayla, like you talked about at the beginning of the chapter, I mean, th these are opportunities for kids to get an education and get a degree. And Ray, kind of how you talked about too, you assumed that the whole thing was a joke, but then you find out how much money they're actually investing in these tutors and class checkers and facilities for these kids to learn. So they do it a different way. I mean, he doesn't need to put down the majors just because they're not Ivy league caliber. I mean, it, he just sounds like such an elitist, but. Um, we can close the book on chapter four and move on to chapter five if you guys are ready. And for this one, it's a, it's basically about his trip to SEC Media Day. And I don't know really why this part, the, the first part, the second part I understand more and we can get into the merchandising and all that stuff. Was there anything that we need to talk about with him going to SEC Media Days? Really, I, I didn't really understand why this was part of the book. It didn't really have much to do with yeah, the, the whole culture. Yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing. This whole section of the book seemed out of place and, and unnecessary. It didn't discuss the money at all. I mean, I guess it gave a, a glimpse into how big football is in the South, but it didn't really put any dollar signs to any of the discussion points he brought up in terms of Radio Row and number of writers that show up and people that have created blogs to discuss SEC football. Um, None of it really, no, none of it really hit home for me in terms of the the big money culture of college football. To me, it it was more about how, just how big college football was in general in the South. Yeah, I this part did not need to be. Well, I don't know if this book even needed to be written, but um, <laughs> this part did not need to go into the book. Um, it was more or less just a play-by-play -play of how his days went, and it was it was just kind of annoying to read. I mean, it was almost like he was just like a name dropper of, oh, and ESPN's here, and oh, CBS, and oh, it was just it was kind of annoying. Um, I was kind of inspired by the the young kid. That was a nice little throw-in of creating his uh, 
Teens for Tennessee blog and how football can be inspiring to people as opposed to uh, breaking it down. So, Yeah, and he brought that part up right after he got done talking about the Saturdays down south. That's a blog, and I guess they have like over a million Facebook followers or something. And so he meets with the guy who runs that and has to be condescending to him and asks him, oh, well, do you guys ever uh, participate in any acts of real journalism? And it's just that whole tone of him throughout this whole book is just like, dude, why do you? And the, the guy was like, no, uh, it's a <laughs> blog and we basically do it for fun and to be entertaining. And we know who we're talking to. We're talking to SEC fans and fans who are uh, college football fans and people who love the SEC. So I, I, I he just he seems like such a stiff. I don't know. I, it yeah, was kind that's... of funny too, just quickly. He was talking about, I've been a reporter for 37 years and I had trouble getting my passes to uh, the media days and people wouldn't return my calls. And then one, one of the guys, I forget who it was that he was talking to asked, he, he was like, Oh, so you don't like me? Cause I'm a northerner or something. And the guy was like, no, it's because you're writing a book that's going to make fun of us and take down college football. So nobody wants to talk to you. And it, he just has a weird attitude about the whole thing. It, it's, it's like he's on a different planet. He starts the chapter talking about like, boy, it was so hot and muggy. And then the locals tell me this isn't even hot. And it's like, you're probably just a wuss. I don't know. <laughs> Probably wasn't that hot. The the assistant AD he talked to hit the nail on the head. It's like, why would we invite you in here so you can just make fun of us and and look down on us? Like that's that's not what this is about. This is supposed to be a celebration of SEC football and SEC sports, and and you're going to come down here and be a wet blanket to everybody. So no, we don't want you here. (laughs) What a fun sponge. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and again, it's like if it's not your thing, that's fine. It doesn't have to be, but just. Stop trying to ruin it for everybody else. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, we don't have to spend much time on that if none of us really got anything out of it. I did think this part was a little bit interesting. It could lead to some discussion. Is just the whole licensing and the, all the merchandise. And, and college football merchandise sells for about $5 billion per year. So it's a pretty big industry. And it doesn't really sound like it, it started off that way because the schools didn't totally know what they had. When it came to getting, like, for example, he uses, he spends a lot of time on Alabama here. They make 8% royalty on all this stuff. And there were a lot of questions about, well, can you use their colors? Can you use Bama? Is it, you know, the, the one lady was trying to make cookies and bakery items and they were thinking about taking her to court. So I don't, I don't know if we want to touch on all that stuff and where do you guys come out on, on, on this, this issue, I guess. Well, the, the thing that I found most interesting about this was how back in, I guess it was in the eighties, the, the schools, like you said, didn't take licensing and trademarks and branding and whatnot as seriously. And Bill Battle, um, actually created this collegiate licensing company because he was working with Alabama on a few things and realized that they didn't, they didn't, do anything in this area and then he realized that basically across the country none of the universities did anything in this area and so he created collegiate licensing company and and basically allowed these universities to outsource that piece of their um athletic department or 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 university departments and they ended up um signing over 200 colleges to the collegiate licensing company that then would go out and do the licensing fees and royalty negotiations and those types of things ultimately he sold the the business to img for over a hundred million dollars so that was pretty interesting to me i it 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 seems like that 
they would have had this figured out before the eighties, but, um, this guy basically came along and, and brought us to where it was today. Bill battle did. Um, I, I mean, I see where they're coming from and it's definitely a moneymaker on the Alabama or collegiate side. Um, but I think it's a little, it's, it's too far. Um, you know, I guess unless a company gets like really big and they're drawing in a lot of money off of this product. I mean, if a bakery's making some cookies, I mean, it's to promote your program. So it's, I just don't think it's that big of a deal. Yeah, the two examples he gave, the local bakery and the the local artist, it just it seemed pretty petty by Alabama to go after them. Um, and some of the things, it's like, okay, you can't use crimson and white. It's like, well, come on, seriously? You can't sell shirts that say Bama. It's like, well, we live in the state of Alabama. Why can't we sell shirts that say Bama? That stuff, you know, I'm not super torn up about it, but it just seemed a little bit petty by the university there. Um, but I guess on the flip side, it's like, if you don't confront those companies, like, where do you draw the line? At what point is it too big that you need to do something about it? Or what point is it too small where you don't need to do anything about it? It, it, um, it's it's probably a fine line that they have to walk. And it could get out of hand quickly, like a t-shirt business could, um, or things like that. So yeah, definitely. That's a good way to put it, like just defining where the line is and what what is too much. You know, if like you're saying, if it's just a couple hundred. Oh, man. And this part he was talking about, it's what is it? Two hundred fifty to like three hundred orders of cookies of like a dozen cookies or whatever that the lady would sell with the Alabama with the Alabama A. And Gall was talking about, well, when they play Auburn, they sell up to three hundred orders of a dozen cookies for the big matches. And I was just like, oh, my God, he thinks football games are called matches. Like, that's how little this guy knows about football. That stopped me in my tracks for sure. Yeah, I was trying to figure out how that lady made a profit, too, because they said she made like 10 cents a cookie. In her busy time, she was selling like 300 cookies. It was like this this she's going to go bankrupt before Alabama gets her lawsuit (laughs) going anyway. I think that was just for the specific, like, game day Alabama cookies. Oh, okay. Not anything else in the bakery. At least that's how I looked at it. Yeah, that I did think it was interesting, though, with the artist, too, where he would take pictures of the actual plays in the actual big games, and then he would go paint it. And so I, I, I do... You know, it, it is unfortunate that they it had to go to court, and that guy was an alum and everyone in his family and everything. But it does at least... Ray, kind of like you were saying tell you okay so what is too much and where where is that line you know are you is that too much of the likeness or can it only be just the logo or at least it, i thought it was an interesting conversation to have yeah no i agree in in um more the guy that the painter ultimately ended up winning the lawsuits it went through a couple of rounds of appeals and whatnot and he ended up winning the lawsuit um, and being allowed to do it based on his, the, the artwork he was creating was an expression of his first amendment rights. So that, that was, this was probably the most interesting part of the book to me. Um, maybe cause it was less about him going after the athletic departments and more about just the universities as a whole and, and the licensing and trademark side of things and, and how it came about. And, um, you know, what universities, I guess, are willing to do to, to keep that branding and keep that licensing and trademarks going. 
Well, I liked the part two at the end of this chapter where Alabama ends up with, with the lady at the bakery. She only had to pay them. They ruled that she only had to pay $10 and Alabama didn't end up cashing the check or anything. So even though they went through all that at the end of the day, you know, a lot of people in the community were kind of like, really, are you guys going to do this to her? So then as it turned out, they, they ended on okay terms. It sounded like, but yeah, well, I, they went through it all to get the point across, but yeah, that's, that's what I found. So compelling about this part is, is if, if you're Alabama, you let that go, you let how, like how much, I guess we kind of talked about how much do you let go before it's like, okay, hold on a second. So, but right. Uh, and, and I'm not a lawyer and I don't understand law that well, but if, you know, if a company's operating in a certain way and they're doing so for however many years, and then all of a sudden they've grown to be a huge company, I don't know what the precedent is for Alabama or any, any college or university to come in and say, Hey, now we're going to shut you down because you're using our university's likeness without our, you know, agreeing to it or whatever. If that went to a lawsuit, would they say, well, they've really been operating this way for 10 years and you never said anything. So we're going to just keep letting them operate this way. I, I don't know how that works. Maybe one of our readers does or listeners. Yeah, that's a good point. Like you might want to stomp it out before it gets too big kind of thing. So, yeah. Um, all right. Well, if you guys don't have anything else on that chapter, we can get into our final thoughts and what we're going to be looking ahead to for our final section. Kayla, do you want to kick us off with that? Um, yeah. So last week I was asking if I ever thought, or if you guys ever thought there would be a cap on um, football coaches. And I did think it was interesting. He brought up that they, the NCAA tried to do a cap on the assistant coaches and um, they weren't able to get that to go through due to antitrust. So that basically answers that question. That would never happen, even though you guys already said that. Um, and I just, I really just don't, I don't like his perspective that he takes. Almost everything that he brings up, I have the um, reverse review or view of. So it's just kind of a difficult book to read because I find myself getting angry with him <laughs> while I'm reading it. Yeah, but for my final thought, it's a lot of that too. Is He just seems really smug and condescending and he's just kind of unlikable. So it, it kind of... This book, he just doesn't know anything about football. And like I said, he calls football games matches. It just This book seems to me, and I don't really know who this describes, but it seems like it's for people who don't really know anything about football, but for some reason would want to read a book about football. And like, if you don't know enough to ask any questions, then you might just soak it all in and think he's making tremendous points. And it just, it gets really repetitive. And kind of how we talked about where, Every experience, every new place he goes, every issue, every topic he brings up, he takes issue with it because, like we said, it's he has one lens that he's looking through. And before he started writing this book, it's almost like his mind was made up and I'm, here's what I'm going to hammer. And so everything I'm going to twist and mold just to fit this narrative that I already have. And it's just kind of annoying. Or it's just, you know, if these chapters are so long and just five chapters that we've had to kind of grind through. And it's like, is there anything good about college football? Can you ever find anything positive? Does it all have to be doom and gloom? Is, you know, I, I just refuse to believe that it, it, it's just the worst thing ever and everything has to be railed against. But after a while, it's just like, all right, man, we get it. it you know, if college football is not for you, then it's not for you. And not everything has to be like the Ivy League. So it just... I'm not really that excited to read the rest of the book, to be honest, but I guess we'll have to see how it turns out. Ray, what is your final thought? 
Yeah, so reading this section from the viewpoint of Gall trying to show how much money is in college football now and how quickly it's grown over the past few decades, um, that kind of helped me get through these three chapters. It didn't make me agree really with anything he was saying, but at least it kept me from harping on why is he not making this argument or that argument? He's he, he he was simply showing how much coaches are making, how big TV deals are, how much people are willing to donate and so forth and so on. So it it at least eliminated one of my frustrations from last uh, the last reading section. Um, but overall, I agree. He, he doesn't understand how college football operates. He seems to not understand simple supply and demand economics. Um, he's, he appears to be upset that the athletic departments create an entertainment product that is clearly valuable to a lot of people in this country. And, and that value creates large TV deals, bowl game payouts that are then used to feed back into the athletic departments that will continue to grow the value for their universities. Um, he hates that model and it's, it's clear. He doesn't, he, like you said, Jake, he, he shows it through a single lens. He never presents an opposing view to, um, for the reader to be able to kind of make their own decision. So, and, and there are positives to be taken away. He, he presented this as a negative, but to me, it's a huge pro positive how much universities are going through to make sure their student athletes are actually fulfilling the student part of that. The or Oregon academic facility, the, the Kansas class checkers those are things that i honestly was not really aware of um and, and made me feel better about college football actually in that yes these universities are actually making these kids go to class yes it's a it's a huge positive that you know certain kids who maybe would have never had this opportunity had it not been for college football are now able to go and get a degree and graduate from college and, and be productive members of society, whether they make it to the NFL or not. Um, so I, I think he, he maybe missed an opportunity there to bring the reader in a little bit more by, by at least touching on the positive aspects of those things, even if it still came back to his, his lens that we aren't, um, we aren't focusing on the quote unquote real students enough or the athletic departments aren't contributing to that side of, of the university enough. He could have, he could have presented some things in a positive light that he didn't. And so I agree with you, Jake, it's, it's been hard to get through, but um, you know, we'll get through the next, the next couple chapters and finish the book off. Hopefully, you know, a few more points come about that, that are good and discussion worthy. Um, but I don't have a lot of hope. Yeah, I just have um, one final thing. Sorry, I didn't forgot to include it with the other thing. I um, I don't like how he assumes that every athlete is just trying to phone it in academically. That no one is actually there to receive uh, a a good education. Um, not every student athlete or every athlete is looking to just take the easy route out. I mean, there's pre-med, there's law, there's, I mean, they're there to get an education. It's, I think it's terrible to assume that all football players are, that's their only thing that they want to get out of life, that they're not there to receive a, a great education. Yeah. Kayla, that's a great point. Cause one of uh, my brother's friends played football at Nebraska, which is one of these big time programs, but he went into pre-med and took advantage of that. And he, didn't make the NFL or anything, but he's a doctor now. And 
that wouldn't have been possible if he wouldn't have been given a free education for four years and took advantage of it. So, yeah, it, he doesn't he, he doesn't allow himself to focus on that side of it. So I think that's kind of frustrating all of us. But yeah, Ray, like you said, we'll get into the final section here in a couple of weeks and wrap it up and see if he either changes his tune a little bit or at, at the very least, I think we've had some good things to talk about. So uh, we can get into our book recommendations, though. Ray, do you want to kick us off with that? Yeah, so I'm actually going to um, recommend a, a one book and then a series of books here, both by uh, Bill O'Reilly. If you're a fan of American history at all, um, his Legend and Legends and Lies, The Patriots, uh, it's a book about the Revolutionary War and stories surrounding the Founding Fathers, um, basically from about the time of the Declaration of Independence signing up through the Confederate surrender. Um, all the way through, yeah, the Civil War in the American West. It's, it's, it's a very interesting um series the legends and lies is is mainly the revolutionary war and then also his killing series where it's killing leaking killing kennedy um there's a number of books there where it's it's a very similar script and where he goes into great detail on on the things that led up to those assassinations so interesting reads if you're a fan of american history okay kayla what about your book recommendation uh, I'm going to do it a little bit opposite. I'm going to recommend a book not to read, um, oh. <laughs> if that's okay. Um, Serena, it uh, Ray and I listened to it on audio on a road trip. We thought it would be a great book to read, and we like to do books that uh, are movies so that we can go to the movies together and watch it. And it was uh, very drawn out. It was very boring. Um we ended up like making fun of it most of the time and <laughs> movie was just as bad. It, we were really excited about the movie, which is why we read, decided to read the book. It has Jennifer Lawrence and um, what's his name? Bradley Cooper, Bradley Cooper in it. And it was just horrible. So you can uh, cross that one off of your list if you had it on there. Uh, so don't waste your time. Okay, my recommendation is Operation Mincemeat, the true spy story that changed the course of World War II by Ben McIntyre. Can't really say a whole lot about this book because it it's a spy operation, but it, it's very, very, very unique. And if I start to go into what it is, that kind of ruins the story behind it. So it's just one of those things with World War II, you could read books about it forever. And there are so many things that happened that you have no idea about. And this is just one of the craziest stories I've read. So it's called Operation Mincemeat and it's by Ben McIntyre. It is, you can get through it pretty quickly. And it is, if you like World War II books and, and special operations specifically, it's about as unique as it gets. And that's about all I'm going to say about it. But yeah, it's a really good one. So uh, we can get into the reading assignment though. It's going to be to finish the book. The next episode is going to be August 26th. So it'll be chapter six through the epilogue. And that'll be our final episode for 2019. So go ahead and finish the book again. We're not going to have an episode next week. So get that done by August 26th. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in, though. Remember to give us a follow on Twitter at America's Readers. And thanks so much again to everyone who has been listening all year. We really do appreciate the support. That'll do it for us, though. We'll be off next week, like I said. So we'll see you August 26th for our last episode until February 2020. This has been America's Readers. For Kayla Ruberg and Ray Ruberg, I'm Jacob Doyle. Until next time, take care and happy reading.